Good morning. It's so good to be with you this morning. Pastor Beatty is away uh, on a well-deserved vacation, family vacation, some time to rest and recuperate. And uh, it is a real pleasure to be able to come alongside you this morning and truly study God's Word and apply it to our lives in the week ahead. Orlando, Florida, spring 1992. A young man returns home from his second shift manufacturing job just past midnight. He's unable to sleep because he just couldn't shake this one particular thought that had consumed him for most of the prior few days. Whatever the reason, he had just found himself dwelling on the idea of his future. Goals and ambitions and dreams about career, family, travel, health, finances, all of which he was certain that he could simply map out and accomplish over the next 25 years of his life. And so in this moment of sheer brilliance, he captures this detailed plan in a letter to his future self, a letter that would be opened in that way out next century even year of 2017. Well, that 23-year-old young man and his future self is yours truly. And a couple of years ago, I opened this letter. And as I read it and I began to read it, all I could start thinking was, what was I thinking? <laughs> what was I thinking? I can assure you, nowhere in the letter was I thinking that I would in any way be standing in front of you in any capacity on a Sunday morning. But as I continued to read through this letter, I eventually concluded that attempting to detail the plans of one's future life is truly an exercise in futility. Fun, yes. Nostalgic, yeah, that was kind of fun. Would I encourage you, if you haven't done so, to capture your thoughts and dreams in a similar way? Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, I think there are elements of this exercise that were healthy, creating a few goals and to dream a little bit. But here's the problem. And here's where the Apostle James is going to take you and me especially to task this morning. The Apostle James is going to reinforce for us today is that deep down I was so certain that these plans would become reality if for the mere fact that if I planned it, I would make it happen. That even as growing in my faith and spiritual goals were part of this master plan, I had failed to acknowledge the prominent role of the master planner. And so, if like me, you have a tendency to overconfidently self-plan your tomorrow, then I invite you to join me this morning as we take a look as James instructs followers of Jesus how to rightly think about those details. Spoiler alert, you probably have already guessed, it is drastically different than that of young David. And regrettably, it is often much different than that of old David. So prayerfully, I'm, I'm, I'm especially prayerful that James will challenge and convict and encourage us just as he's done over the past five weeks in this series of his epistle. And as he does, he's going to show us the practical and the spiritual arguments for how to plan our future God's way. Through this, we're going to discover 
Three characteristics of a godly planner. Three characteristics of a godly planner. So let's begin. The first characteristic of a godly planner is that they include God in all of their plans. James writes, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. Well, we have seen throughout that James is adamant. A believer is to live out their faith in all arenas of life, the sacred and the secular, the Sunday morning and the minutia of Monday through Saturday, at work, at home, in the marketplace. And let's face it, generally it's it's kind of easy when we're making plans or thinking about our future uh, in the church environment, planning for a mission trip or where we're going to serve in local missions next year. It's part of the deal. When we plan out something regarding our faith, we look for God to give us some direction and some guidance. But outside of these types of plans, how naturally inclined are we? to include God in establishing those details and those plans. And really as a qualifier up front, sort of a clarification as we get moving into the rest of the, the text here, while nothing is too small for God's inclusion, what James has in mind here are the consequential matters of life, the major areas, uh, the impactful areas, the influential areas, jobs, our vocation, relationships, uh, our children, major purchases, relocations, education, and the like. Now, arguably, there may be consequences to your plans for Sunday lunch right after we're done. Subway, Taco Bell, there's consequences in those plans. That's not exactly what's in view in this passage. So, in these verses, James uses that one major example of vocation. Uh, the resulting wealth and, and financial gain that we, we, uh, we find with our jobs and our careers. He reminds readers that excluding God in this planning process is inconsistent from a godly witness. And he does this by describing a merchant who's traveling from town to town to buy and to sell and to trade the goods. It's a perfect illustration. Genius. Imagine that. The, the inspired word, a genius illustration, because it's an image of exactly how first century Roman commerce worked. See, this was a, a, an economy that flourished due to this amazing Roman infrastructure, a network of roads and trading routes, busy with foot and chariot traffic going about first century business. But even with these state-of-the-art roads, a typical trip was very common, say the equivalent of, of going from Clemens to Charleston, South Carolina. That trip itself would have taken two months or more. Plus meeting the trading vessels, setting up shop, getting the contacts made, making the transactions, completing the deals, and then returning two months. Yeah, this is a year-long process. This is something they knew about. Their family was impacted by it. They saw neighbors. They saw merchants. They were employees of. It's a long process. So a common conversation might have been one. Okay, family, I have made my plans. I will go for 10 months, and I will go to this city, and I will make this profit, and I will return on this date. So let it be written. So let it be done. And to those 
who held the posture of such certainty in their business plans based solely on the ability to make them happen? I will, I will, I will. James had a warning. He said, you are so confident that you will go here and there and you will do this and that and make a certain amount of money, all of which are not bad in their own right, but you have no reason to be so certain. You don't even know what tomorrow will bring. James says it's, it's unwise. It's simply unwise to make claims of what you and I will do tomorrow. And even more so without the acknowledgement that God alone knows the outcome. It's unwise because it amounts to actually excluding God altogether in lieu of going it alone. And we, we do this. We, we know this. We know the sorts of things, the decisions. Their first century illustration to us might be something like uh, our retirement plans, uh, maybe investment plans. We, we go it alone because it's rock solid. We know what we're doing. We craft plans of our children's future. They're going to go here and that, and they're going to play this and do that, and this is what will happen. Our children, we know them. We do that in, in relationships, marriage relationships. We go it alone. I, I'm certain. I know. She's the one. Important areas of life, important plans and decisions that are important to God as well. And when we attempt to, to uh, develop these future plans without serious prayer, without serious time in God's word, without seeking serious clarity through godly counsel, well, what happens is, before we know it, these rock-solid, self-made plans are crushed by a health condition, or a career change, or a market crash, or a broken relationship. We never saw that coming, and here's the thing, because we were central to all the planning and unable to acknowledge our own limitations of what we do control, we become central to all the disappointment and all the discouragement and all the despair. And you know, acknowledging that God is in control of our tomorrow does not guarantee worldly success. It does not prevent us the heartbreak or the broken plans. But I can promise you from personal experience and many observations, there is a place of greater contentment, peace, and reassurance for the one who has faithfully recognized dependency on God's sovereign control tomorrow than the one who has not. And you hear that, and so maybe you're thinking, all right, I agree with that. Um, God does control tomorrow. We don't know. We just don't know what's going to happen for certain, 100%. But does that mean we stop planning? Isn't planning a, a good thing? And the answer is no, we don't stop planning. And yes, planning is a good thing. It's a biblical thing. In fact, throughout Scripture, we see many references to encourage us to be prudent and deliberate in our planning. And Proverbs, full of it, 21.5 says, The plans of the diligent will lead to this profit as surely as haste leads to poverty or not planning. And then in Luke 14, this is one of the favorite parables, favorite teachings of Jesus. He talks about this man who had gone out, and he's comparing it to discipleship, but he, this man has gone out to build a tower, a grand thing, and he hadn't really planned it. And so since he hadn't planned it, he couldn't complete it. And since he couldn't complete it, uh, he was mocked and ridiculed. 
the importance of planning, counting the cost in advance. And so the key is that planning in and of itself is not the issue. It never has been. It's not about the what of planning. It's about the how of planning. Are we motivated by following our way into the future? Or are we motivated by following God's way? Are we submitting our plans before God, pressing forward on our own, all alone, with great certainty? That's the planning issue of the heart. And that's why we say plan diligently, but diligently include God in all of your plans. That's a trait of a godly planner. Second characteristic of a godly planner is that they prioritize planning with a perspective of eternity. Verse 14, the the second half of 14, we read, What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. A mist that appears and vanishes. That's a real downer. (laughs) Here today, gone tomorrow. Cheers. But that's, that's not the message. Actually, James is using what would have been a very familiar phrasing uh, to highlight this direct correlation between how we think about our limited time and how we prioritize our calendar. And we know it's, it's the undeniable truth. We hear it often that when we recognize how fleeting our days are, we do begin to craft our plans much, much differently. I am, I am reminded uh, from the line of singer-songwriter Tim McGraw, who says, I hope you get the chance to live like you were dying. A reference to a changed perspective when facing one's mortality. And I think James would agree with Mr. McGraw. We should live like we're dying because we are. And to the believers, that's not fatalistic. That's not morbid. It's simply the recognition of the brevity of this current life in comparison to the eternity of the life that follows. Now, here's, here's why I think in context, this is one of the most important pieces of the entire passage this morning. See, contextually, when James compares life to a mist, the original audience would have set up. They would have taken notice. This would have been the aha moment of these passages. This uh, diaspora Jewish Christian audience, the original recipient of the letters, these scattered churches, they would have no doubt known exactly the light bulbs going on. And you say, well, how do you, why, why, would, why would that be? Why contextually in the first century could it matter any more uh, than today? Now, all right, hang with me. You know, the, the, the prettiest views sometimes are always come after the hardest climbs. So hang with me. I promise you the view is worth the climb on this. The reason is that what we miss as modern readers of the text is that James uses this word in Greek for mist that is taken directly from, it's it's directly derived from the Hebrew word havel. Havel. Okay, hang with me. Jewish Christians, diaspora, this is his audience. You say this word in mist in the Greek, bam. Havel. Why? Because Havel is a word that is used over 26 times in the book of Ecclesiastes. We go back to our introduction. James is the Proverbs of the New Testament. He's constantly drawing from the wisdom literature of Old Testament to teach and instruct. Here he's doing it again. Bam! 26 times the Old Testament wisdom book of Ecclesiastes. In fact, Ecclesiastes sometimes is referred to as the book of Havel. 
That's the theme. That's what's going on there. It's a wide range of meaning. Vanity, futility, meaningless, vapor, mist. And scholars believe that Solomon, the author of Ecclesiastes, had this whole broad range in mind uh, when, when he would use it throughout uh, this, the, this wisdom. Uh, that life absent God, absent the existence of God, apart from God, was meaningless and a mist. It was futile because it was a vapor, and so on. And so now, these Jewish believers hear Havel from this mist, and it resonates. They immediately think to Ecclesiastes. The, the passage may be like uh, here that says in 2.11, Then I looked on the works that my hands had done and on the labor in which I had toiled, and indeed all was Havel, vanity. And grasping for the wind, there was no profit under the sun. And they're reading and they're thinking, oh, wait, business plans, work, toiling, profit, Havel, missed? And they say, ah, James, now we're connecting this. Think about your life, your business dealings, you're going to such and such places, your profits, your many plans, absent the existence of God, apart from God, without God, they're Havel. They're a vapor. They're meaningless. And I don't know about you, but the realization of life is a mist for me prompts me to be more purposeful with my remaining time. It motivates me to stop seeking profit for profit's sake. That's vanity. Havel. It's rather it moves us to labor with greater purpose, kingdom purpose, in whatever vocation, um, Neighborhood, school, organization, hobby, God places us. And I think we don't have to go all the way back into the original languages to understand this. We have a good appreciation for life as a mist, I think. I mean, how many times even this week or, or even this morning did you turn to someone in conversation and say, Whew, August 16th already? 18th already? Oh my gosh, I missed two days. How time? Flash? <laughs> A.T., how fast time flies. Oh, my goodness, summer's over. And then, of course, as we get older, we experience the mist-like qualities of time with our children. With our physical abilities. By the invitation to our next high school reunion, Fighting Matadors, class of 86. Our 35th year reunion is on the horizon Hevel. <laughs> Hevel, life is a mist. But here's the deal. Let me stress this. Please hear this. When we practice the idea, when we believe the idea, when we're convicted of the idea of life is mist, it is not a call to simply throw up our hands and drift aimlessly into tomorrow. In fact, it couldn't be any more opposite of that. It means that planning our Monday morning at the office, the next two weeks in our classroom, the next several years in our home are even that much more critical to living life on mission. That the significant opportunities, many of them, to glorify God often come by the way of intentional planning. So let's plan and plan well, and let's plan our days with an eternal perspective so that we don't squander the moments with selfish priorities that bear no fruit. That's the second trait of a godly planner. Brings us to our third and final point. 
When it comes to godly planning, the most important thing we can do is to seek and obey God's will for tomorrow. So here in verse 15, James continues. He gives us the the how-to, an alternative to worldly planning. And he writes, instead, we see that instead and we think, okay, rather, as opposed to, pay attention, here comes a better option than the one I just described you doing. So instead of that, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Now, the first thing that comes to mind for me is that we recall in our introduction that James offers very few, if any, suggestions. James gives us commands. So that we ought to say, if the Lord wills, means that we do say, if the Lord wills. It is a mark of discipleship. But the real question is not what we ought to say. The real question, again, is how ought we say, if the Lord wills? Well, for one, when actually spoken, and that's not necessarily what James is referring to here, but if actually spoken out, I think we need to be careful. And it comes from our heart out that we don't just become flippant or robotic in reciting if the Lord wills behind everything we say without truly thinking about it, without truly meaning it, without truly being sold out to it. It's, it's like the, um, the old saying that I recall as a child, and I'm not sure if it was said in North Carolina, but I know in Texas that if you committed to being somewhere, your qualified guarantee was this, I will be there. Lord willing in the creek don't rise. Maybe, maybe we've heard that, maybe not. That's, that, that's um, harmless, <laughs> but uh, that's not what James is instructing us on here. It's actually, rather, one who's consistently saying if the Lord wills is one who's actually living out if the Lord wills, whether it's spoken or not. It's one who's faithfully trusting in God's plan each day, submitting to his path, even when it disrupts what we believe to be a perfectly played out plan already or makes no sense. I really like, I really love what Dr. Tony Evans, well-known, highly respected pastor, author, teacher at Oak Cliff Bible Fellowship outside of Dallas says on this teaching of if the Lord wills. He says that we have arrived at living this way. We have finally understood what it means to live if the Lord wills when we have learned to say, and I quote, Lord, these are my plans, but I subject them to your will because you are infinitely greater than I am. Your will is an expression of your infinitely perfect plan for my life. Open doors, close doors, provide me clarity, And allow me to be at peace where you lead. Wow, if the Lord wills. Yeah, I think we've arrived when we can finally wake, put our feet on the floor each morning and and commit to that. And and here's the thing, though. When we don't desire, James has told us we're going to stumble in many ways. We're not perfect. But when we at least don't desire to live a life of if the Lord wills, what we're actually saying is at best, Lord, we don't need or value your guidance in this situation. Or at worst, you don't exist. Either it's technically a form of practical atheism, which is quite counter to what James is instructing us on living a life of true faith. And so he will 
now finish this passage by transitioning into that, by moving from the wisdom of godly planning to the sin of ungodly planning. And he says, as it is, as it is because you don't invite God into your plans, you live by your will and not his will, as it is, you boast in your arrogance. I will, I will, I will do this. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Now that warning's pretty clear. I don't think that takes a lot of digging into. When we boast in our planning, we become arrogant about tomorrow. Well, that's evil. And when we should know better, well, now it's sin. That's pretty clear, self-explanatory. And so I'd like us to, to remember that. That's a good and necessary warning of obedience. But like most all of God's commandments throughout Scripture, there's two sides to the obedience coin. There is the warning side, the stick that informs me I am living in sin, and the consequences that occur with that. But see, there's the blessing side of obedience too. There's the blessing side that um, it, it brings protection, it brings provision, it blesses me in ways that I would otherwise miss if I continued to live in sin. The blessing side of obedience. And in that respect, I just think to the countless number of stories, testimonies that I've heard over the years that give witness to this, those who allowed their plans to take a back seat to what God had in store for them it resulted in an amazing, fulfilling, life-change experience. Now, many of you have provided these testimonies. Many of you have experienced this. You've shared this very thing. The Lord has blessed you through the pursuit of His will over your will. Now, the spirit of full disclosure, transparency, recognition, we know that God's ultimate will for us is our eternal good. And we know it's for his increased glory. And so when we acknowledge that, then we know that his plans living in his will are not always free from pain or difficulty. In fact, I believe and I have seen that affirmation of living in God's will is often found in the sacrifice. The sacrifice of status, pleasure, relationships, wealth, personal safety. And yet, even in those situations, living in God's will, God reveals his goodness to us in many, many ways, ensuring us that being in his will is always worth the sacrifice. And you know, the, the sort of a further uh, idea on that thought, a few years ago, I read a fictional work by C.S. Lewis. Um, it was a title called uh, Perilandra. Uh, Perilandra is the second in a series of uh, trilogy books that Lewis wrote. And it was early in his career. And is, if you're familiar with C.S. Lewis, he often, much of his fiction, has some allegorical style and uses the Christian faith as, as a way of telling the story. And uh, when I was thinking about the message this morning, I thought back to a specific dialogue that occurred in this book, Perilandra. I think it really reinforces the underlying truth of seeking and following the Lord's will. Now, in Perilandra, there is a character simply by the name of the lady. Now, the lady represents a pre-fallen Eve in this cosmic pre-fallen garden. I know, kind of crazy, but it's good. Just, just stay with me. She is met, and it gets better, she is met by this earth visitor who shows up by a time machine, of course, and um, they have this conversation. So the lady in the garden, pre-fallen, without sin, 
And this gentleman named Ransom shows up, and he asks her this question. And this is really the payoff in the conversation when he asks, Lady, why don't you simply walk away from the one who has created you and provided for you? He seems to plan and control all that you do. To which the lady responds, I thought your words had meaning, but now it seems they have none. To walk out of the creator's will is to walk into nowhere. That's great. I hear James saying, amen, lady. Amen, lady. Being in the will of our creator is a far superior place to be than wandering out in nowhere. And I realize the world promotes the culture of nowhere as a spectacular somewhere. If it feels good, do it philosophy, the me, 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 me mentality. But those are words without meaning because it's still nowhere. Dark, lost, lonely, nowhere. Outside of the creator's will. So we want to live and plan if the Lord wills, so we will live in his will. We desire to know it. We desire to prioritize tomorrow with the, an eternal perspective. And we desire to include God in all of life's plans. Three characteristics of godly planners. Well, you and I are about to leave here in a few minutes. At some point today, most of us will start to think about the days and the weeks ahead. We'll pull out our day planners. We'll pull up our eye calendars. We'll update our schedules, we'll set reminders, we'll start making lists of all the such and such places we're going to go and the such and such things we're going to do. It's the prudent, deliberate exercise of planning that will take place across most of our homes. As we enter into this activity, whatever form it takes, I'd like to suggest a couple of questions that we may want to consider. The first is this. Regardless of what I'm planning in the big matters of life, the consequential matters of life, is God included in the process? Is he part of the pre-planning conversation? Is he truly my master planner? Second, are my priorities reflective of an eternal perspective? Do I base the activities of tomorrow on short-term worldly gains or on long-term missional gains? And the mist-like reality of life, does it truly impact my future? And third, am I genuinely interested in following the Lord's plan for my life, trusting where he leads, and willing to say, if the Lord wills? Godly planner. Well, we've talked a lot about how we plan our lives, and I think we'd be remiss if we didn't close by at least considering how God has ordained and orchestrated the most perfect plan we can ever know. It was a plan that was initiated the moment that we were separated from him by our sin. It's a plan that is promised and worked out across the entirety of Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation. And it's a plan of restoring you and me in righteousness before a holy God. And if you're here today and you're not yet a follower of Jesus... It is our highest priority and privilege to share that plan with you. Please, please, if you have questions and you're curious about that plan, please don't leave here without finding a pastor or an elder, making a note on a Hey, I'm Here card that we can follow up with. If you're here and you are a follower of Jesus, 
I'm going to encourage you as we sing our closing song here in a moment to reflect on the words of the song we've selected today. Words that remind us how God actually worked out this plan. How our plans will be totally surrendered along with our treasures and our trophies before him one day. And words that encourage us to live with the vision of a future crown to guide our present journey. Would you pray with me this morning? Our Heavenly Father, we, we truly are humbled and grateful to have access to your word this morning. Thank you for inspiring it and preserving it for us, Lord. We pray that as we approach this week, that we will employ the wisdom and the warning of your Apostle James. We will include you in the planning of our days. We will never forget the brevity and the urgency of this life for missional purpose. And Lord, we pray that we would hunger, we would desire to know your will and then to live in it. And Lord, be in peace where you lead. And Lord, of all this, we know that anything we do, all of our labor, that if you're not in it, then it is simply in vain. Lord, we ask this in the name of the master planner, our creator and sustainer. Amen.